All right, turn back with me to Revelation chapter one. And if you were concerned with the amount of ground we would cover in our worship reading this morning, have no fear, we're only looking at one verse. <laughs> um, we're going to spend some time in verse nine. And as we approach the second half of chapter one, um, we see this amazing picture of Christ revealing himself to John. And it's striking because John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He spent time on the shoulder of Jesus. And we see this striking picture, this vivid imagery of who Christ is. And the result, the net result is that John falls to his face on the ground. Certainly he knew this Jesus. But we see the overwhelming picture of Christ, and our tendency would be to skip to that. And we will, in when we come back to this passage in February, take a deep look at that. But I want to spend a little bit of time in verse 9 this morning, because I think there are some very important nuggets of encouragement for us in, in that verse. And, and I'm blown away by how... Um, the Holy Spirit superintends the teaching and preaching of his word because there's unmistakable parallels between what we'll look at um, in this verse and what we talked about this morning in Bible study. And that should be an encouragement to us because what that should tell us is God wants us to hear this this morning. And if he wants us to hear this this morning, we need to hear this this morning. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we look to his word. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of who you are and what you have done. You have brought us from amazingly diverse backgrounds and called us your people who were formerly not a people. You've taken enemies who opposed you and reconciled us to yourself and now call us friends. And we have nothing else to do, Lord, but to praise you and to worship you for what you've done. We ask, Lord, that out of our deep affection for you, that you would help us to listen to your word this morning. That you would um, draw from it even, Father, from my best attempts to share these words, that you would extract from it the truth that would feed your sheep today. We ask that we would set aside our distractions and the things that would call our attention elsewhere that we might, for a time, fellowship around your word this morning, and that we would be fed, and we ask these things in the name of our Savior, amen. All right, so there are three points that I want to touch on this morning from this one verse, and that is a friend closer than a brother. Point two will be a, a present reality of the kingdom. And then thirdly, enduring in our kingdom work. So John identifies himself as a brother and a partner in tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He says he is on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is isolated on Patmos by Domitian, 
an ungodly, wicked man who, after attempting to take John's life by boiling him, says, if I can't kill you, I will send you to the uttermost parts of the earth where you will be of no good to anyone. Except for that's not exactly the case, is it? So here John is isolated on Patmos for the uncompromising testimony concerning the word of God. And, and this is how this is how he opens up his conversation to the seven churches as he's writing. I want this to sink in because this resonates with me after what we talked about with David in the cave this morning. The first thing you would think John would do is talk about his situation. You know that Domitian, what a wicked man he is. Would he have been wrong? No. But he doesn't do that. And I, I was thinking about, it's very possible John is writing from a cave here on the island of Patmos, right? There's The, the similarities are striking. And I'm, I, I couldn't help but think of Castaway, that famous Tom Hanks movie. Everybody's seen it. it it's one of the, I loved it. But he goes through this period of time as he's a stowaway on this island of misery. And one of the things that you find out after he's rescued is it, it, that during the movie, he tried to, attempted to take his life because he was in absolute misery, isolated, alone for three years. And, and I, I, I like the scene where he's been rescued and he has this, incredible spread before him and he lays down in the hotel room on the floor which is what he had gotten accustomed to doing and he's essentially sharing and recounting his history with his friend and he says you know I realized that on that island I was absolutely helpless I couldn't even kill myself mm-hmm. and I think to myself how would we be if we were in that same scenario here is John writing probably by candle to the seven churches and not a whiff of woe is me. Feel sorry for me. That just blows me away. I mean, we're living in, uh, Matthew, you used the word narcissism this morning when we are talking about Saul. We're living in a narcissistic age. Go on social media. We're raising and training narcissists where everything is about me. What I'm going through, my problems, my worries, my concerns, my difficult circumstances, the raw deal I got. Anybody could raise their hand and say, hey, I got a bad deal here. Who's John? Not a complaint from him. This is a man who is infused with the grace of God through the Holy Spirit. And he is writing to the seven churches. And he says, I am your brother. We know the word well. It's the word Adelphos in the Greek. And we see uh, one of the churches in the city of Philadelphia later as we read. That's where this word comes from. And it means this, one who is family because of the mutual work of the Holy Spirit. And and Paul uses repeatedly, as we know well, 
the analogy of the body to give a visual of this principle to us. But here's John. And I wanted to look at, at this verse because there are some things that, that were striking to me as I contemplated them. First of all, how would I have been if I were jailed and isolated? What would my letter to Word of Grace look like if I was in that position? What would yours look like? We get so wrapped up in ourselves that we lose sight of the needs around us. And may the Lord forgive us for that. I want you to see, first of all, that this brotherhood, and we might use the term sisterhood as well, is the deep bond of the Holy Spirit. And it surpasses any human relationship that we that we have. It goes deeper than blood. And and I, as I was studying this passage, I, I couldn't help but go back to our study in First Samuel because we we studied recently the relationship between who David and Jonathan, who were brothers because of the work of the Holy Spirit, deeper than blood. And what a testimony it is to know that God has placed in in saving us and redeeming us and regenerating us through the power of the Holy Spirit. He puts us into a family. And I want to take us um, in just a minute to Ephesians chapter 4. But just a reminder from Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14, in whom you also, in whom you also, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with that promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the commonality that we have as the body of Christ. And the question that kept slapping me in the face is, what kind of a brother am I? You might say, what kind of a sister am I? Am I a Jonathan to David? Am I a Ruth to Naomi? Am I living out the image of Christ in my friendship, in my brotherhood, if you will, to the body of Christ? What does it take to be a brother born for adversity? In Proverbs 18, 24, it says, a man that hath friends must show himself friendly. And there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Do you have a friend like that? Have you had a friend like that? Are you a friend like that? Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter four. I want to spend just a few minutes over here and extract a little bit on this this principle of, of brotherhood. In Ephesians chapter four, we're going to look at verses one through six, and, and here we go. First four verses. I therefore am prisoner for the Lord. This is Paul writing the church in Ephesus. And the word prisoner there means in the original Greek, shackled. I'm Paul writing to you in shackles. What's Paul concerned about? Can you guys send me some of that cream that helps with the chafing? of the iron on my wrists and my ankles. Can you send me a care package in this prison that I find myself in? What does Paul do? He says, I therefore am prisoner for the Lord. 
I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. What is Paul's primary concern as he's writing in shackles? Them. Mm -hmm. What was David's primary concern as he's hiding out in a cave? All the misfits from the land of Israel that came to him for help, for solace, for comfort, for wisdom, for some sort of shelter and protection. This is the heart of a pastor here. This is a man who genuinely cares about the people that he is addressing. And John is the same way. This is incredibly important for us to understand. He said, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Notice from verse four to six, the use of the word one. Verse four, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Do you see how many times he uses the term one? Seven times. You think he's trying to communicate a point. He uses seven ones there. And he uses it to demonstrate unity. That we should be indivisible. But it isn't always so, is it? We talked about division this morning and how Saul was setting up the kingdom of Israel to be divided. He was a divisive man. One of the great tragedies in the church of Jesus Christ is division. Paul warns the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 12, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. We see this warning repeated by Paul to Titus in Titus 3, 8 through 10. He said, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. By the way, Paul is not saying here, truth doesn't matter. How many times have you heard the saying, I don't worry about doctrine. Doctrine divides. That's for someone else. I am a Christian. No, Paul is not diminishing the importance of truth. But what is he talking about? Minor matters becoming major matters. Foolish controversies, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Verse 10, he says, as for a person who stirs up division... How dangerous is that for a church? Well, so dangerous that Paul says, after one or two warnings, have nothing more to do with them. Why? The body of Christ should not be divided. 
Paul uses the analogy of the body for a very distinct reason. It is unnatural to sever your arm off. Would we all agree with that? Can I get an amen? Don't cut off your arm. <laughs> it is unnatural. And it's unnatural for the body of Christ to be divided. So back to Ephesians chapter 4. How do we build and maintain a close spirit-knit brotherhood, if you will, a sisterhood, a family? There are five things that Paul points out, and I just want to touch on them briefly. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, he mentions five things. First of all, humility. Humility. This is exemplified by John. As we see him writing from the island of Patmos, it's exemplified by Paul as we see him writing from Rome in chains. And it's certainly exemplified and personified in Christ. Humility here is a picture of selflessness. And this refers to an attitude of humility. We see this attitude spelled out in Philippians 2, 1 through 5. So if there are any if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which was yours or which is yours in Christ Jesus. Humility helps us to see us for who we really are so that we can look past ourselves and look not just on our own things. Selfish ambition, conceit but to count others more significant than ourselves. If we want to build those kinds of deep friendships, the Jonathan David friendships, if you will, it starts with humility. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but on the interest of others. It seems, it, it seems intuitive, doesn't it? If you want to be a good friend and you want to have a good friend, don't be selfish. But it's hard, isn't it? I remember Terrell Owens, a famous football player, famously saying, I love me some me. Hmm. And you're like, how selfish could he be? But he was just stating the obvious. We love us some us. Second thing Paul points out is gentleness. In the King James Version, you'll see the word meekness there. Not to be confused with weakness. What does it mean if we're to be a Jonathan to a David? We must be gentle. Here's a, this is an interesting term. It means to be mild, soothing, allaying. It means to tame a wild animal. You've seen that movie, The Horse Whisperer with Robert Redford, right? Where he can touch the horse's face and get the horse to stop being all squirmy and twitchy and I just walk up to the horse and say, hey, I buy you food. Stop it. <laughs> that was for Nicole. I hope she's listening. But to be able to take a 
massive 1200 pound beast, touch it on its face and get it to calm down. That's gentleness. Mm -hmm. We might call a person with this ability um, a ledge walker. We've all heard the term, I've been out on a ledge. What does that mean? If you say, I've been out on the ledge this week, what are you talking about? Ready to step off, right? Person with gentleness has the ability, the bravery, if you will, to step out on that ledge for someone else and talk them down. That's the picture of gentleness here. To take this wild beast and tame it. David had that characteristic, didn't he, by the way? He demonstrated that to Saul on multiple occasions, didn't he? And the question that comes to my mind is, are we willing to be an instrument of encouragement to calm the troubled hearts of our brothers and sisters? You say, I don't know how to do that. I don't have that kind of power. It's above my pay grade. Yeah, it is. But what do we do? We see our brother or sister in deep distress. How do we help them? We, we can do one thing, and that is to point them to the one that calms the troubled seas with a word. The greatest encouragement we can be to each other as brothers and sisters is to point each other to Christ. He said in John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Real friendship encourages us and points us to Christ. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. How do we as men sharpen each other? We model or we image Christ to each other as brothers and friends. And we point each other to Christ. The third thing is patience. Patience or long-suffering and um, one of my favorite commentators, John Gill, in commenting on this particular verse regarding patience, he says, quote, bearing much and long with the infirmities of each other without being easily provoked to anger by any ill usage. Have you ever been taken advantage of? Isn't one of the hardest parts about being a friend is you're setting yourself up to be taken advantage of? And so we do the old-fashioned stiff arm to people. I don't want to be used. I don't want to be abused. And so we keep people at arm's length. That's not what it takes. It takes patience. Bearing much and long with the infirmities of each other without being easily provoked to anger by any ill usage. And not immediately meditating and seeking revenge for any affront given. How often do we do that? Can you believe what so-and-so did? Man, that just galls me. And then we mull it over and over and over until we have created this perfect um, pearl of anger that has just worked up its irritation in our hearts. And he says, and so to walk is to walk worthy of the grace of calling or agreeable to it 
to God that calls by his grace, who is long-suffering both with wicked man and with his own people. How can you and I be a brother or sister born for adversity? You know how we do it? Because God has been patient with us. He has been long-suffering to us. I can take abuse because Christ has taken abuse on my behalf. And then number four, he says, bearing with one another, similar thought line, but really has the picture of, of um, forgiveness. Colossians 3, 12 through 13 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Verse 13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, go on Facebook and talk about it. It says, if one has a complaint against another, what? Forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Bearing also carries with it the same theme from Galatians 6.2, which says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Church is full of people with burdens that are overwhelming them, full of them. And part of it may be, hey, I don't want to ask for help because I may be too proud. That can be one. Part of it can be, I'm too busy looking after my own things and I don't see the things going on around me. But the needs are there. And then the fifth thing I want to point out Paul points out in Ephesians 4 is there is an eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit. We might use the word zealous. If you're zealous about something or you're eager about something, you're excited about something. He says, eager to maintain. That means to guard, to protect. Let's put it in another term. We're willing to put in the work for what matters. We're all willing to work for what matters, aren't we? The question is, what matters to us? Paul said regarding the unity of the Spirit that the bond of the Holy Spirit requires from each of us a zealousness and eagerness to maintain that. Maintenance is work, isn't it? We don't like to do maintenance. But if we're to be a church of Jesus Christ that exemplifies the bond of the unity of the Holy Spirit to the world around us, we put in the work. It must matter to us. Does the bond of unity matter? Does this describe you? Are you isolated? Are you lonely? Do you keep others at arm's length? Are we living out the friendship of Christ to each other as a body of Christ? We are surrounded by the wickedness of division in this world that we live. It's everywhere. Everywhere. I don't, I don't need to give a hundred examples. But this world around us is divided. Christ is revealed to this wicked generation by the unity of his body. And there is a powerful testimony of the church to stand out 
when the world sees the unity of the bond of the Holy Spirit in the body. John says he is a brother and a partner. The word partner there means fellow participant. Proverbs 17, 17 says a friend loveth at all times and a brother is born for adversity. We have all had, and we've known them, fair weather friends. Everybody know what a fair weather friend is? Hey, you won the lottery. (laughs) Excuse me. I don't recommend playing the lottery. It is a poor tax. Don't do it. But Proverbs 19, 4 and 6 says, Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. Fairweather friends. We've had them before. But I want you to see something, and John brings this out. Real friends are partners in tribulation. They are partners in the work of the kingdom. John 16, 32, behold, the hour is coming. And this is Jesus talking to his disciples just before he goes into the garden of of Gethsemane to pray. John 17, in which he is then taken and bound and ultimately crucified. Listen to what he says to his disciples. Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each one to his own home, and will leave me alone. What would you have thought if you were one of the disciples? And they're sitting there thinking, you know, that Judas, I'd never do that. Remember what Peter said? Lord, I could never deny you. And Jesus says, the hour is coming when you will leave me alone. And he says, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Real friends are partners in tribulation. They do not scatter and disperse when difficulty arises. John uses the term tribulation, the Greek word philipsis which is incredible pressure, incredible pressure. When we're under great pressure, what do we do? Do we scatter? It's incredibly important. And here's a biblical principle spelled out in 2 Corinthians. Verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? A partner, as John declares himself to be here, is one who is equally yoked to the load. Well, we don't talk about yokes very often. And I remember when I used to hear that verse, when Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are who labor and are heavy laden, <clears throat> and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. As a young man, a very young man, relating everything to food, I thought of egg yolks, right? (laughs) Not what it's talking about. The term yoke there is that wooden apparatus that is put on a pair of pulling animals. 
Now, why does scripture talk about being unequally yoked? Well, you may have two perfectly strong animals. I can have a draft horse and I can have a donkey. And if I strap that yoke on, what's going to happen? Got a little problem. Uneven. Uneven yoking. Legs too short, legs too long. What happens when those two animals start pulling a load? That's why you would buy oxen in teams or pairs so that they were the same height, weight, dimension, or equal to the load. Believers making deep friendships with the world and the unbelieving are unequally yoked. We see the analogy used rightly as in marriage. An unbelieving person and a believing person are unequally yoked. Different length of legs, different pulling ability. And when you put both of them, that that wooden harness on both of them to pull the load, they can't do it. A partner is one who is equally yoked to the load. And John identifies himself as, I am your brother and your partner. I'm sharing the load with you. I want you to see that godly partnership or friendship brings purpose and affliction. We talked about that this morning as well. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. David writing a psalm in a cave, anyone? We're comforted by the psalm that David wrote while he was in affliction. We question many times, why did God bring this affliction, this occasion for tribulation or persecution into my life? And more often than not, it is to do his body good. And how is that? Because in my affliction, or your tribulation, or your persecution, you can take the comfort that God has comforted you with and turn it right back to the body of Christ to be a partner in tribulation. It means that suffering then has purpose. The age-old question, when something, when trouble arises, that we're tempted to ask is, why me, Lord? Our R.C. Sproul, one of my heroes of faith, would often say, why not me? He said, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. There is the yoking together of the body of Christ. We share in each other's burdens. We share in each other's sufferings. We share in each other's afflictions. And then we share in the comfort. How do you, as a a person, encourage someone else? You think, I don't know what to say. God will give you experience. He will train you. And he's taking all of us to school so that we can share that same comfort that we ourselves were comforted with. How do you talk to somebody that's lost a parent? How do you do that? You don't really know how until the Lord takes you through it. 
And then you can take that comfort, that amazing grace that sustains you through the, the loss and the incredible pain of losing a loved one, and you share it. You share it with someone that has the same need and doesn't know what to do. How do I know that I'm in this kind of friendship? Godly friendships exhibit the image of Christ to each other. In John 15, 12 through 17, it says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Godly friendship. This brotherhood, the bond of the Holy Spirit exhibits the image of Christ to each other in that friendship. So how do I know if I'm in that kind of friendship? How? Because we have been fooled, haven't we? There have been many, many people. My parents were one. My mom thought she was marrying a believer. And in her heart of hearts, she knew better, but she denied that truth and went ahead anyway. And after the first year of marriage, they were on the verge of divorce. And God providentially... Thankfully, I wouldn't be here today, by the way, if it hadn't worked out differently. It's my dad's going to get the divorce paper signed. The Lord saves him. That night, that divorce was never meant to be. But how do we guard against those relationships, if you will, that are falsely promising to us? Does this friend help me obey Jesus? Ask that question. And I would ask if we're to ask what kind of a friend we are, what kind of a brother, what kind of a sister are we? Do we help our friend obey Jesus? Well, how do we do that? A, by doing it ourselves, number one, but by encouraging that other brother or sister to love Jesus. How many times have we gotten bad advice? Oh, just follow your heart. Yeah. That'll help you love Jesus and obey him. Does this friendship sharpen me? Does this friendship sharpen me? Have you, You've all been around that person that when you have spent time with them, you walk away knowing that you have been strengthened spiritually and that you have a greater zeal and a desire to, to follow God. Those are rare people. We've all been around them. Some of them have been our mentors. When you spend time with them, they sharpen you. Why? Not because there's anything great about them individually, but because they, they point you to Christ. In his sermon, The Unrivaled Friend, Charles, Charles Spurgeon says this, quote, the love of man to man is sustained by something drawn from the object of love. But the love of Christ to us has its deep springs within himself. 
If it had been to subsist upon us and what we do and what we merit, ah, it would be always at the lowest conceivable ebb. But since it leaps from the great deep of the divine heart, it never changes. And by his grace, it never shall. There is only one friend that will never fail us, never leave us, never forsake us. And the question is, in the body of Christ, do we image that friend to each other? That's what John's talking about here. A brother and a partner in tribulation. I want you to see number point number two, the present reality of the kingdom is tribulation. What do good friends do? You're going through a very difficult time. Well, you don't deserve that. Real friends don't tell us what we want to hear. What does John do? I am your partner in your best life now. Uh (laughs) Does he say that? I'm not your partner in your best life now. I am your partner in tribulation, trouble, pressure, oppression, affliction, pressure. Did I mention pressure? John tells the truth. As does scripture. Jesus says in John 16, 32 through 33, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. Read this verse a few minutes ago. And you will leave me in, leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. Verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you have peace. In the world, what? You might will will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Acts 14, 19 through 23. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and listen to this saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There was no prosperity gospel. The disciples were preaching and confirming the souls of new converts by saying, see these bruises. This is what's coming. That's the truth. This lie that leaves um, Christians unprepared for what they're to experience in this life is a travesty. Frankly, I'll I'll be perfectly blunt. It is why I do not believe in the pre-trib rapture. It is the American way of thinking regarding the second coming of Christ. Because I get out before the going gets rough. And if things really get bad... Something's wrong with you. You sinned. Through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. Mark it down. Prepare yourself. Strengthen your spine to stand against it because it's coming. If you purpose 
that you will live godly in this life, what will happen? All those that live godly will suffer persecution. If you purpose that you, like John, are going to stand for the word of God and be faithful to it, you will be canceled. You will be put out. Second Thessalonians 1. Verse 5, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. John says we're brothers and partners in tribulation and in the kingdom. I don't have time to get into everything I wanted to say about the kingdom this morning. But we have taken the concept of the kingdom of God and relegated it to this um, solar system out in the middle of space that will never fully grasp and understand and think about it's way 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 out there and has nothing to do with this life now not true what is the kingdom of god now we all believe that god is sovereignly upon his throne overseeing everything that he sustains and upholds this world by the power of his word with his hand But what we mean by the kingdom of God, and Jesus preached it. When we read through the Gospels, you see a reoccurring theme. Repent. For what? The kingdom of heaven is where? At hand. But conversely, Jesus says when he's standing before Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Because if it was, my servants would fight. On one hand, his kingdom is not from here. But his kingdom is here, and it's here in his church. It is here within you and I. He says in in the, uh, the Gospel of Luke that some of you will not will not die until you see the kingdom of God coming. So is it this future thing far away? It is an everlasting kingdom. I want to give you some quick points here. We don't have time to dilly-dally, but the kingdom of God is an everlasting kingdom, and it is the redemptive reign of Christ over his church. The kingdom of David, upon which there will be no end. In Daniel chapter 2, we find that, that there's this vision that Nebuchadnezzar has. He calls all the magicians, the wise men of Babylon together and says, I need to understand what this dream is. And the the wise men are like, "Mm, what you're asking is too much of a great king. Because Nebuchadnezzar said to them, I want you to tell me not just the interpretation of the dream, but what the dream was itself. Can't do it. It's unfair. And Nebuchadnezzar said, well, if you're not going to do it, then death to all of you. So here's Daniel and his brothers. And the king's guard comes to him and says, we got to take you to die. And Daniel's like, hold on. Why are we in such a rush? Let's pray. And and Daniel and his three brothers go to God, cry out to him and ask him, Lord, can you tell us not just the meaning of the dream, but the, the dream itself? And God does that. And you remember the vision that, that Nebuchadnezzar had? of this huge statue made of different materials. And then in the dream, there is a a stone made not by hands. 
that takes this statue, which is different kingdoms, and like a bowling ball, destroys it. And then that stone, not made by hands, grows into a mountain that fills the entire earth. That is the kingdom of God. And Jesus uses the analogy of a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in a field. It is the smallest of seeds. And when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The kingdom is everlasting, but it is a growing kingdom. You and I are in the period of time where God is growing his kingdom, his church. And you and I get to be here and do kingdom work. It's a spiritual kingdom, but it's a growing kingdom. Christ is building his church, meaning he's building his kingdom, but it is a spiritual kingdom. How do you see it? How do we see this kingdom? Jesus told Nicodemus, except the man be born again, what? Can't see the kingdom of God and he can't enter. The kingdom of God is spiritual, but no less real. Romans 14, 7, Paul says, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but of righteousness and peace and joy in what? The Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is also soon to be fully consummated. Matthew 24, 14, and the gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The full consummation of the kingdom. At at the separation of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, verse um, 34, the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's, that's the last judgment. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. But every man in his own order, so Christ the firstfruits, after they, afterward they are in Christ that is coming, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God. Even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Revelation 12. And the great dragon, I want you to see something as we get into our study in the book of Revelation here. You're going to see two competing kingdoms. And that started when? Anybody care to? Eden. Yes. In the very garden of Eden. Satan has always desired to have a kingdom. You remember when he tempted Jesus and he takes him up on the pinnacle a great high place, and he says, see all of these kingdoms, I will give them all to you if you bow down. He has rule and authority in this world, and as he has always done, he is a great counterfeiter and will do everything he can to fight against the advancement of the kingdom of God. And we see great counterfeit after great counterfeit in the book of Revelation exposed. By the way, Satan hates the book of Revelation. He despises it. I have, I have not had more trouble studying for messages or sermon than I have lately, to be perfectly frank and blunt. 
but he hates this. Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. <clears throat> Listen to this. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. I, I said before, the book of Revelation is, is a revelation of Jesus Christ that reveals him to be fully prophet, fully priest, and also fully king. And the overwhelming comforting truth to a church that is beleaguered and battled with tribulation is the fact that Jesus is on the throne. He is king. Nothing happens outside of his sovereign hand and his sovereign direction for every one of our lives. If you need something to anchor to as you're going through tribulation and persecution, know this. He is king. He is sovereign. And he will bring his church through it. Lastly, point three, enduring our kingdom work. How do we endure? How do we endure? He says in verse nine, I'm your brother, your partner in tribulation and the, in, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. The patient endurance. God has called us to patiently endure. Was John enduring? He was. He's writing to the seven churches from a cave. He has called us to, it's the word meno, to remain patiently, to, and, and it uses the word lodge, right? We don't often invite each other over to our lodges, <laughs> right? But it's talking about where we live. God is telling us if we're the time being, you must live with this. You must live with it. It's going to lodge with you. And you're going to remain under it patiently. That's what it means to endure. So how do we do this? Well, first of all, we need to understand that his grace is sufficient for us. We talked about it in our Bible study this morning. What was God teaching David? He was teaching him to rely on God. That's the truth that we need to know. Remember, Paul seeks to, uh, to be rid of his uh, infirmary. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. How do we endure? Well, we don't. He endures for us. And if we are sustained by grace, if we have been bought with a price, if we are redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he is sustaining us. So let's get that out of our heads that there's something I can do to hold up. If I grasp his hand, I won't fall out of it. Oh, all that the Father giveth to me shall not perish. And what does he have? He has 
each of us in the palm of his hand. Why? So we can grab hold of his finger and not fall out? No, he's, he's holding us. We're sustained by grace. But we need to understand that our labor is not in vain. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor <clears throat> is not in vain. We are not wasting our time here. Sometimes it feels like we are just whistling in the wind. Like what we're doing doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Have you ever felt that way? I have. How many years do we labor at Word of Grace before we say, you know what? Our church just isn't big enough. We're going to pack it in. Are we wasting our time here? No, we're doing kingdom work that matters now for eternity. How do we endure in this? How do we not grow weary in this? Because we know through the eyes of faith that our labor is not in vain. It's not meaningless. It's not empty. The repetitious training of our children when it seems like it's not sinking in. Do we give up? Sometimes it feels like we may as well have. And then the Lord converts one of our children and saves their soul through the teaching of the word that he has ordained in your family, where you have to the best of your ability, not always in faithfulness, taught your children time after time after time. And the Lord uses the teaching of his word to convert a sinner to Christ. And then you realize, you know what? The labor, though it felt like it, was not in vain. Keep working. Keep laboring. Keep at it. John is in a cave. And what is he doing? Does he quit? Does he give up? No, he's writing to the seven churches. Paul is in shackles. Does he quit? No. He keeps working. I promise we're almost done. I want to read you um, a brief article from R.C. Sproul. It's called Bearing and Enduring. <clears throat> and just bear with me as I read this. I think <laughs> it'll encourage you. Why? Have you read that? No, consider. <laughs> it's called Bearing and, and Enduring and then just bear with me. Oh. <laughs> we have to endure with you. Yes, you do. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for bearing with me. <laughs> It's based on 1 Corinthians 13, 7, where it says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. R.C. says this. I want to, we're on a first name basis, by the way. <clears throat> he says, I want to focus on the bearing and enduring aspects of love. Those aren't the same thing, but there is a close link between bearing and enduring because being able to bear pain is an important is important to being able to endure. And if love is going to endure in the Christian life, love must be able to bear a certain amount of pain and disappointment. I think Paul is talking about the grace of God and the gift of love that makes it possible for us to deal with suffering. So much of the New Testament speaks to the reality of human pain and suffering, and suffering is something that we are called to bear and exhorted to endure. Now, when we talk about endurance, we're talking about being able to stay at 
or with something, which is usually over a protracted but certainly finite period of time. We distinguish between sprint type races and endurance races. Different abilities and strengths are required to run the 100 yard dash than are required to run a 26 mile marathon. But both races have a definite finite period of time. One may last 10 or so seconds and the other may last two to three hours. When scripture talks to us about the reality of suffering, it always reminds us that suffering is for a season. And the promise of God for the Christian is that there will not be an eternal, relentless experience of pain for the redeemed. Rather, the promise is a complete end to all suffering. The promise for the future is repeated again and again in Scripture to give us hope, to strengthen our resolve and our ability to bear and to endure pain when it strikes in this world. God's word tells us the suffering we're called upon to endure in this world is not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits the saints at their life's end. But in the meantime, the whole of life may seem to be an endurance race. Years ago, I had the privilege of visiting the home of a former Miami Dolphins quarterback and meeting his wife. Um, That was Judith Greasy, by the way, who died in 1988. Um, He continues, who was dying of cancer. It was a privilege because she was a deeply committed Christian woman. I sat next to her. She looked at me, a single tear flowing from her eyes, and she said, R.C., I just don't know how much more I can take. It's gotten to the place where it seems unbearable, unquote. She wasn't complaining or bitter. She was simply tired. We prayed together. I left, and several days later, I got the report that she had died. She had fought the good fight for the faith. She had finished the race. She had kept the faith, and her pain was over forever. I look at her life, and I ask myself whether I can endure that kind of prolonged, protracted suffering without becoming absolutely impossible to be around, without becoming bitter and angry. But this is where the rubber meets the road. Will we love God when we're hurting, when the pain of our experience is so intense? Pain and suffering tend to eat away not only at our love, but also at our faith, because we begin to wonder if God is loving and if he is even real. We ask how in the world he can let this relentless pain grip our lives. That's why it's so important to keep our attention on the word of God. We are told not to be surprised when suffering comes our way. The New Testament doesn't say that suffering might occur. It says it's a certainty. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 when he talks about what he bore for the sake of the gospel, beatings, stonings, being left for dead, shipwrecks, days and nights at sea, fighting with wild beasts, and constantly being the target of human hostility. Why was he willing to bear those things? Because he understood the divine purpose for suffering and the divine promise not only of relief from suffering, but of of the redemption of the suffering itself. In this interim between Christ's resurrection and his return, Christians are called to participate in the afflictions of Christ. By hearing and enduring pain, we walk in the footsteps of Jesus and mirror and reflect him to onlookers. Coming back to the quarterback's wife, we could look at her pain and say, here is a woman that God did not love. Or... We could look at her and say, here is a woman who God loves so deeply 
that he would entrust such pain and suffering to her, knowing that she would endure. Mm -hmm. That's real greatness. That's real achievement. One problem we have in our day is the popular belief that God never wills pain or suffering. Many teach that if you trust in Jesus, all your problems will be over. You'll never have to live with deprivation, persecution, or pain. Have the people who say such things ever read the New Testament? I can hear them saying, what's wrong with you people? Just a cursory reading tells you that if you are in Christ, you will suffer. You will be afflicted. You will be persecuted. The Christian life is a pilgrimage filled with pain, affliction, and persecution. And the more we love God, the more consistent we are with the love of which the apostle speaks in 1 Corinthians 13, the more we will be hated and persecuted. And we will find it necessary to bear and endure all things. But what makes this possible is love. Between bearing and enduring, we are told that love believes all and hopes all things. It is only as we believe the word of God and have confidence in our future that we are able to bear and endure. Unquote. Those that endure are anchored in God's word and continue to plow. Second Timothy 4, 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We're there. We're there. Because nobody wants to hear, you're going to have affliction. Verse 5, Paul tells Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry, keep plowing. Those that endure continue to pursue the kingdom of God. Romans 14, 17, for the, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but, <clears throat> excuse me, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that hath, for he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of man. That let us therefore follow after, run, pursue the things which make for peace and the things wherewith one may edify another. The kingdom work that we must persist in is edifying each other, building each other up, imaging the friendship of Christ to each other as the body of Christ. There are two questions as we close this morning that resonate with me as I think about this, and a lot of things um, coming together for me as we've been going through First Samuel. We looked at Ephesians 4, where Paul urges in bondage people to walk worthy of their calling. And that's the question that, that is pervasive to me this morning. And am, am I walking worthy of my calling? Am I walking in humility, in gentleness, in patience? Am I forbearing and forgiving? And am I eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit? Am I loving my brother? my sister, my partner, my fellow yoked um, believing brother or sister that's born for adversity? It's an important question. Are we that person? Are we fulfilling that role in someone else's life? May the Spirit of God make us so as we submit to his word. And then the last question is, have you been called? 
it's one thing to work well worthy. it's one thing to walk worthy of our calling it's another thing to have been called jesus said you are my friends if you do what i command you to do his command in mark 1 14 through 15 says now after G john was arrested jesus came into galilee proclaiming the gospel of god and saying listen quote the time is fulfilled the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe the gospel the question for every one of us as we search ourselves is have we repented and believed have we been called the day is coming when time will be no more the kingdom of heaven will have passed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, John. Thank you, Lord, that he modeled you and how he loved the church. And that you have given us a repeated cycle of examples here. As John modeled you, we are to model you as well to each other. Father, I pray that you would help us be the brothers and the sisters that we should be. That we will leave an example to the world around us and leave them wondering at how it is possible. In a world of darkness and division, seemingly ruled by this wicked one, how is it that these people love each other? And in answering that question, we have the, the keys to the kingdom. It is the gospel that changes us and allows us who were formerly enemies to love each other. Help us to live this out, Lord. We thank you for your, your word and this time together this morning. We ask that your sheep would be fed and that those that have eyes to see would see. In your name we pray. Amen.